You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Well, thankfully, none of the pressure is on me. Uh, The Word will do all the work. Well, it is uh, good to be with you guys again. I'm super thankful uh, to to be among you and to be able to talk about Jonah and think about Jonah together and um, hear God's word. You know, I said the first week, we need to be eager, we should be excited that uh, God is going to speak uh, among us because we're, we're in His word. Uh, and it's really that, um, that simple. God is going to speak because we are in His word together uh, this morning. So, um, let's read Jonah 3 together and then we'll pray. And jump in. So, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. I think we've got about 10 verses or so. Chapter 3. You know, and just as a refresher, in case you haven't been here, Jonah, you know, so far Jonah has been the story of this, this prophet of God being sent to a, a, an unbelieving um, uh, nation of just uh, injustice and violence and idolatry. And, and he says, no, don't think I'm going to go there. And it goes the opposite direction. And so God sends a storm after him to turn him around, throw him in the waters. Uh, he's rescued by a giant fish that God sends after him. Uh, Jonah repents of his sin. He repents of his rebellion. And the fish hurls him out. And so we come to chapter 3. Verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing picture of how You have dealt with us. Our sin deserves Your relentless justice. 
It's not impossible that our own hearts have turned from you a thousand ways this morning over our breakfast. Our hearts even now may be tempted to treasure something other than you in all of your greatness and holiness and goodness and righteousness and love. And yet you relent. You, you do not pour out the wrath that we so deserve for our sins. And instead you show us favor and grace and patience and mercy. You do not send the disasters upon us that we deserve. Nineveh is a picture of the mercy you have shown our, our souls. The mercy you want to show to this whole creation as you make it new. As new as your risen Son. So we are a people that are needy as we come to your word. We need you to continue to show mercy and continue to show grace and to open our eyes and soften our hearts and excite us for these things. We are cold and dead without your help. Put joy in our hearts and smiles on our faces for what we see and learn and taste of you for our time this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, do a little audience participation. You guys are comfortable with that, right? Raise your hands if you've ever heard of Marjo Gortman. Yes, okay, this illustration will work then. <laughs> so none of you know about him. Okay, so this is good. So Marjo Gortman, weird name. His parents were weird. Um, so his parents were like uh, hyper-revivalistic uh, tent preachers, and um, they named their firstborn, uh, maybe their only child, Marjo. Um, it's supposed to be a compilation of Mary and Joseph, Marjo. Poor kid was named, you know, saddled with the last name Gortman. So, you know, Marjo Gortman. It's an unfortunate mouthful. But, um, you know, the kid, uh, the, the parents raised him to be a preacher from the day he was born. And so even as a kid, he was preaching these, these tent revivals. He was on this tent revival circuit. And, and he was kind of well-known and, and, and semi-famous, you know, regionally famous for um, this being a young kid preacher. And up until his teens, he would do the revival circuit. He would preach at these, these, these tent revivals. But uh, as he got into his, his teen years, he actually wound up um, you know, kind of rebelling against Christianity and leaving the faith and running away from home. And he went off to live in California. And, and he did, like, in the 60s, he did the full-on hippie thing. Like, I mean, he just, he gave himself to the, to the, to the hippie lifestyle, the drugs and the immorality and, and all of that. And then, and then as an adult, he, he suddenly appears on the, on the revival circuit again. Uh, and, and, and this time, it's this, it's this testimony of how God rescued him out of all of that immorality and addiction and, and, and rebellion and, and called him back into ministry. And so he spends all these years um, you know, preaching. 
and, and, and sharing his testimony with, with people. And, 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 and it just kind of blows up. Like thousands of people are coming to hear him preach. And um, people are giving just tons of financial support to the churches that he's visiting and, and to the revivals that he, he preaches at. And I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like celebrity I mean, preacher uh, kind of experience for everybody who goes to, to see him. Um, you know, thousands of people ministered to through, through his preaching. There was even an Oscar-winning documentary made about him, if you can, uh, if you can believe it. You can, you can actually see the whole thing for free on YouTube, I think. Um, when I looked at it, it was broken up in about 10 parts, so you have to watch, like, watch it in 10-minute chunks. But you can see the whole Oscar-winning documentary, or at least Oscar-nominated documentary, on YouTube. Now, the reason I bring up Marjo is that you, know, you, you, could see, you could see the whole thing kind of playing out in this, in this documentary, how many people were flocking to hear him preach. And it's easy when you see things like that, when you see people showing up just to hear somebody talk about God, you know, just to hear somebody talk about uh, the Bible, it's easy for churches and maybe Christians to be a little envious. Right? Like we, we, we might even feel this a little envious when we look at Jonah's ministry because, I mean, think about this. You look at, look at verse 4. Jonah goes into the city, he walks about a day, and then he starts to preach. And what's his message? It's eight words long. Right? The sermon is eight words long. And the whole city repents. Like the whole city changes, turns from their evil. Eight words, I think it's five words in the original Hebrew. We would want that to happen to Hastings, right? Like it would be sweet if, if Joe could come up here in a couple of weeks, preach eight words, and somehow, you know, or, or you know, walk around Hastings, you know, uh, for a day, preaching eight words, and have the whole town change. Jonah is an amazing story. Jonah 3. Because it, that's what happens. It's the story of a sudden, miraculous conversion. The spiritual awakening of an entire population. 120,000 people. Uh, we want our churches to do well. We want there to be more solid gospel preaching churches uh, around us. And so we see things like that happening. We see the thousands flocking to the tents. We see stories like Jonah and we're like, ah, why not us? Sometimes we want this to happen in our own hearts. We want a personal, individual revival right, in, our, in our own hearts. We're discouraged or, um, or we're just really yearning to be more brave for God or grow closer to God or put a certain sin uh, to death. And we want to we take whatever happened in, in Nineveh, put it in a bottle, and, and be able to drink it ourselves for that little revival in our hearts. But it's some, you know, sometimes like we look around and it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It seems that like no matter what we try to do, things like that don't happen. Nothing seems to happen at our preferred pace or in our, or in our ideal time. Like the church doesn't grow as fast as we'd like it to or as, get as big as we'd like it to. Our sins don't seem to 
shrink in their power as quickly as we'd like them to. It's almost as if God can't be bossed around. Like, and he won't, he won't do things just because we tell Him to. It's like God is in charge of changing hearts. It's like God is in charge of growing churches. It's like God is in charge of everything. And if Jonah has shown us anything so far, he's shown us that, right? That God is absolutely in charge of all things, even human hearts. And that's what Jonah 3 is especially about. It's, it's about the reality that God brings revival. And he, and he changes the hearts of, of wayward prophets like Jonah. And he even changes entire populations. He even changes entire cities like Nineveh. Now the question I want to ask this morning is, how does he do that? What does it look like when God gets to work on, on changing hearts like, like He does here in Nineveh? Like God is the one who does the miracle. God is the one who brings the revivals and the awakenings and the changes. But what does that look like? How does He do it? Well, here's the answer that Jonah 3 gives us. And, and here's the main idea this morning. God alone changes people, and He does it this way. He does it by, one, sending His people, and He does it, two, by sending His people with His Word. So that, that's, that's really this, the, that's the main idea this morning. That's the, that's the point I just want to try to get across. If you, if you leave with nothing else, leave with this, that, that God alone changes people, and He does it by sending His Word, or sending His people with His Word. So we're just going to break that into two parts and talk about each part in turn. Let's start by focusing uh, on the people part because I think there's some encouragement for us in it. So when God decides to bring change, He does it by sending His people. When God brings revival, He does it by sending His people. This is what God likes to do. God likes to bring grace to sinners by sending the sinners He's already touched with His grace. Now, last week was a, was a picture of grace as we saw Jonah hurled into the sea and rescued by this big fish and spend three days alone in the dark to face his sin and, 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 and repent and, and come back into fellowship with God. God's grace messed up Jonah's plans and he messed up Jonah's life and brought him to his limits so that he could, he could turn Jonah back to himself. He showed him grace so that he could then take Jonah and aim him as an object of grace toward other sinners that needed to receive God's grace. And it's the same with us. God's grace works mightily on us as individuals and it changes our individual hearts, but, but that's, not the, that's not the end goal for God in us. God, God shows us grace in order to turn us and aim us toward all the others, all the other people He intends to show His grace to. So it's important for us to, to appreciate that God deals with us as individuals and that we have a personal relationship with God, like just us with God. We can get alone with God and have a private relationship with God, but that relationship and how we've been touched by His grace isn't meant to stay private. It's meant to be turned toward others. God changes us with grace to aim us at others. That's something that Jonah's story teaches us here. Sinclair Ferguson has this great little quote in his book on Jonah. He says it this way. He says, The salvation of one Hebrew sinner 
Jonah, was intended to produce the salvation of many Ninevite sinners. The salvation of, of one Hebrew sinner was intended to produce the salvation of many Ninevite sinners. God is up to something in the world around you when He saves you. This is what He's doing in our hearts, in our lives. You and I have been shown grace in order to show it to others. You've been shown the grace of God to announce the grace of God, the Word of God, to others. Now, think with me for just a moment about how you feel when you hear something like that. How do you feel when you hear that God has shown you grace in order to then point you towards others in, in evangelism and in, and in service? How does that make you feel? How do you feel when you see some, someone used by God, like Jonah, to change an entire population? How do you feel when you hear, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations? How does that land on you? Now, you might feel a lot of things when you hear that. But if you're like me, you feel pretty inadequate. You feel incapable, maybe a little afraid. If you're like me, sometimes you just feel unworthy to be used by God to reach the nations, to even reach your neighbor. We read stories of massive conversions throughout history, right? Crusades and revivals, and we read mass conversion of an entire city here in Jonah 3, and we think, how could God use someone like me to do something like that? How could God use me, someone like me, to make even a little difference? in somebody else's life. And this is why Jonah 3 is so important. This is why Jonah 3 is written for us. I mean, seriously, after what we've seen of Jonah, do we really think God is looking for varsity players? Like, do we really think that God is after um, the elite in order to fulfill His purposes in the world? Jonah's a screw-up. I mean, he's a mess. And yet God chooses him. And God uses him, and God pursues him, and goes after him, and, and changes him. It's God's idea to use you. It's God's idea to use screw-ups like Jonah. And we should be slow to argue with God about his ideas. When you think about it, why would revival come to a sinner's heart through somebody who thought they were really great? Why would revival come to any, anyone's heart through somebody who didn't really think they were a desperate sinner in need of God's grace? No, revival happens. People's eyes get open to the beauty of God when God has broken His messengers by His own grace, when He's shown them their endless need for Him. And then, when we've been broken by His grace and forgiven and, and made aware of how desperately we need Him, then He sends us to other people who also need to be broken by that same grace of God towards sinners. Now, 
uh, I usually save application for the end, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one early uh, this morning because I want us to think about this. I want us to think about what just might be going on in our hearts when we don't feel adequate, when we don't feel worthy to be used by God the way Jonah was used, when, when, we, just, when we just don't feel worthy or adequate to be used by God the way Jesus told us to be used by God, to just go and make disciples. What might be going on in our hearts when we just kind of wallow in feeling unworthy and inadequate to be used by God to minister uh, to others? I think one of two things could be going on in our hearts when we try to argue with God about not being good enough uh, to be sent. And the first is pride. The first thing that could be going on, as strange as it sounds, when we argue with God about feeling worthy and adequate to be sent is a battle with our own pride. Because one of pride's favorite disguises is self-pity. It's to be down on yourself all the time. It's pride that says, I'm so bad that God's grace couldn't ever make me fit for ministry to someone else. His grace, in other words, can't be that good. I'm too bad. And that's pride because it makes your sin seem more powerful. You're treating your sin as more powerful than God's grace. You're treating sin as something that the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins doesn't cover. Like, have you ever heard someone say, I know, I know, I know, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, yeah, no kidding. That's not your job. Like, God forgives people. That's His job. Like, do you really think you have a higher standard for who should get forgiven than God does? It's God's job to forgive sinners. And the price He paid through Jesus is sufficient to cover our sins, past and present and future. And when we say we can't forgive ourselves, what are we doing? We're really just telling God that the cross wasn't good enough. That it wasn't sufficient. Imagine Jonah. Like, imagine Jonah arguing with God at this point, after what he's been through. Like, after the way he's been delivered. Imagine him getting hurled up on that beach and, and hearing the voice of God again saying, Okay, now get up and go. Imagine if Jonah had said, oh, You know, I'd like to, I just don't feel worthy. I just don't feel adequate. Would Jonah have been, in that moment, less or more obedient than he was in chapter 1? No, I mean, he's, it'd be equally disobedient of Jonah to argue with God about going to Nineveh because he didn't feel worthy as it was for him to just rebel in chapter 1. And yet some of us argue with God this way, don't we? Maybe we just function this way. We, we maybe do nothing to try to grow spiritually. We do little in service to God because we're just arguing with Him about being worthy. And the, of course you're not worthy. This is not a shock to God. No one is worthy. That's the point. God doesn't use worthy people. He doesn't use varsity players. He uses forgiven people. He uses the people that need Him. And if we think that somehow we can work up to being worthy and then we can be used by God, that's just, that's just pride. And it, it's debilitating. Feeling sorry for yourself all the time. When forgiveness and joy and peace with God is offered, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. So pride can be one reason that you don't feel like God can use you. 
to make a difference in another person's life. But another reason could be just plain old forgetfulness. Now, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> I want to show you something from 2 Peter 1. Second <clears throat> uh, Peter is going to be back of your Bibles. Right after, well, <laughs> right after 1 Peter. That's helpful. Um, it's right before uh, the letters of John and right after um, James, 1 Peter. It's James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Okay, so uh, 2 Peter 1, Peter actually tells us here that one of the reasons we might feel unworthy or, or one of the reasons or one of the things that just kind of shrinks our spiritual growth and, and kind of makes us useless um, as, as Christians is forgetfulness. Let me, let me try to... Uh, actually, let me try to illustrate this first and then we'll look at it. So, one of the ways that we sometimes talk about salvation is as a gift. And actually, this is a biblical image. It, it's a biblical idea to talk about salvation as a gift. We talked about this last week, right, with, with Jonah. And how he said, you know, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's, that's Jonah's way of salvation is a gift. So, so God demands our repentance, he, he demands that um, we uh, be holy like He is holy. He demands that we love Him uh, more than anything else. But we are sinners and we are incapable of doing that. And so God, in His grace, provides the heart, the new birth, that we need to love Him more than anything else. And to repent of our sins and to grow in holiness. That's what Jonah means when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what, that's what Paul means in Ephesians 2 when he says, uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, so that no one may boast. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. And that's a biblical idea. But one problem that we create sometimes when it comes to this image, is that we imagine that salvation is a gift in the way that like a birthday present is a gift. It's all nicely wrapped and it's got the bow on it. And if, if we're going to really have the gift, if we're really going to receive the gift, if we're really going to enjoy the gift, we have to open it up. But if we really want to receive the gift of salvation, we've got to open it up like you would a birthday present. If you don't open the birthday present, you don't have it, you don't really possess it, uh, and so we think salvation is the same, same kind of thing. But I don't think that's what the Bible means when it talks about salvation as a gift that way. It's not like the wrapped box. It's not like the birthday present. Instead, it's more like this. It's more like a deposit in your account. It, it's more like the owner of your bank going in by himself and deciding... He's going to put all of his money under your name. And it doesn't matter what you do. It's there. Like, he just decided, yep, my money is going in his account. My bank, my money, I do what I want with it. And he puts it in there. Now, you can forget that it's there, but it's there. It's an objective Reality, or you could say it's like it's like a test in in, in a school, and and you and Jesus are in the classroom, and Jesus, you know, he's getting an A, right, on the test, and you're probably getting an F, 
because you stayed up all night and played Xbox or whatever it is, and and you know you're just. So you're just, uh, I'm going to get an F, I'm going to get an F, and you're walking to the front of the class, you and Jesus, and you're about to hand in your test scores, and Jesus yanks your test, and he puts his name on it. And he puts your name on his test and gives you his. And so you get his A, and he gets your F. That's what the Bible means when it says salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what the Bible means when it says salvation is a gift. It's not like opening the present. It's, it's like when God saves you, He saves you. When He saves you, you are saved. You are forgiven. Not because of what you've done, but because of what's been done for you. It's objective. It's fixed. It's unchanging. And that is what motivates us to show grace to others. That is what pushes us and aims us toward other people. That's, what, that's, that's the fuel for feeling like, okay, God says go, I'm going to go. Now, back to 2 Peter. I think this is what 2 Peter is getting at. Uh, 2 Peter verse um, 3. Speaking of Jesus, it says... His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now stop there for a second. This is what we want, right? As Christians, we want to stop being controlled by our sin and shackled by our sin. Those things that keep coming up and keep... It's just like, ah, why can't I quit doing this? Why can't I quit thinking this way? Why can't I... Or, or, or we look around us and we're like, you know, why aren't people coming? And why are you know, why, why is the church such a mess? And why are Christians so disappointing sometimes? And like, why are we unfruitful? Right? Why do we, why do we weak in faith and weak in virtue and weak in knowledge and, and godliness and brotherly affection and... You know, why do we lack these qualities? <coughs> why are we afraid to go? Why am I afraid to cross the street and talk to my neighbor about Jesus? Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I think a lot of our unfruitfulness is simply explained by the fact that we forget we're forgiven. Really forgiven. Really saved. Really secure in Jesus' hands. Really reconciled to God. That the cross can't be undone. That the resurrection has happened. It's not unhappening. We belong to Jesus. And no one will snatch us out of His hand. 
We're not going to add some sin to our lives that Jesus forgot to die for. So the solution to these problems that make us afraid to go, pride and forgetfulness, the solution is to trust. The solution is to believe in this good news, the good news that Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ's life and His death and His resurrection really count. It's to believe. It's to believe like the Ninevites believed in verse 5. They believed God. The only way out of pride and out of forgetfulness is to trust God. We've got a kind of glory in our unworthiness because it highlights the worthiness of God. It highlights the greatness of God to have saved unworthy sinners like us. And we're to embrace that and not try to be adequate. Trust that Jesus is adequate. So that when we go to sinners, the sinners will know who to trust. I don't want sinners trusting me. I don't want people trusting me. I want people trusting Jesus and how great He is. God doesn't use people who are adequate. He uses people who are forgiven. He uses the people He's died for. And this is the way God works on hearts. He sends His people, His forgiven people. Next, he sends his people with his word. And this is really what we have to talk about. Um, we have to get this right. This, because it's not us that change people, right? It's like, we, God sends us, but we don't change anyone. It's his word that changes people. Like, like we can go to people with the personal testimonies of, of how God has changed us, and that's good to do. Like, people really shouldn't be interested in the God you're talking about unless they can hear about how He changed you. But hearing about how He changed you isn't necessarily what changes them. What changes them is the Word of God. It's God's Word that gives people life and turns them to Himself. So God sends revival not only by sending His people, but sending His people with His Word. Okay, so, so here we are in Jonah 3, and it's an Old Testament story. And one of the ways Old Testament stories really try to teach us is by repetition. They, they repeat these ideas or phrases over and over again so that we'll catch what's the main point. And the main point in Jonah seems to revolve around this phrase that comes up again and again, in chapter 3, and it is the phrase, the word of the Lord. Let me try and show this to you in, in, the, in the verses, uh, and then I'll tell you why I think this keeps coming up. So, verse 1, we get our start with this phrase, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, and in verse 2 we're told that that word comes with a message for the people of Nineveh. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah so that Jonah can take the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. Then in verse 3, it tells us that Jonah went this time according to the word of the Lord to take God's message to Nineveh. And then in verse 4, Jonah preaches that word. And then in verse 6, it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And then, of course, everything that unfolds in the passage after that is in response to the word that Jonah so everything in this chapter seems to just orbit this idea of the word of the Lord. But why? What would be the point of Jonah repeating this phrase again? He doesn't, like, it's almost unnecessary. But again and again, it, it comes up. And what's the point of it? Well, you have to think about it this way. We have, to, we have to think about what accounts for the sudden and mass conversion 
of the Ninevites. 120,000 people. Like, how do we explain this? Because this is the real miracle of the book. Never mind big fish. People get caught up on, hmm, is this a, like a parable, you know, and just a story where he gets, you know, the fish represents something and it wasn't a real fish. I'm just, first of all, of course it's a real fish. We're dealing with God here. So we have to allow for the possibility that he could do this. But, but second of all, this is, not the, this is not the most amazing miracle in the book. The most amazing miracle in the book is 120,000 people coming to God because a rascally prophet preached an eight-word sermon about how they were all going to die. It's amazing. And that's the lesson for us. There's the truth for us that revolves around this phrase, the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord that accounts for this people's change. It's God's word that accounts for the change in Nineveh. God did this. Yes, God calls us to be faithful and, and go to people, and He uses us to reach people, but it's His word that does it. It's His word that changes people. Notice in verse 5, who is it that the people believe? What is it that the people believe? It says the people believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah's sermon. Of course they believed Jonah's sermon, but really the heart of it is that they believed God. God's word is the way he delights to change people. And, and here's why. This is, this is crucial, why the word of the Lord is effective this way. It's not some, it's not like, it's not some spell. It's not like Jonah chose like the perfect formula and order of words and perfect vocabulary and, and all of that. Like, it doesn't really seem like he put a lot of thought into it at all. So it's not a spell. You know, it's not like magic. God's Word works because He stands behind it. God's Word works because it tells us something about Him. Right? Verse 5, they believed God. God stands behind His Word. That's why it changes people. That's why people respond to God's Word the way they do, because His Word puts Him on display. In His Word, He reveals Himself. You notice even in, in Jonah's brief message, there's, there's loads of information about God. This is verse 4. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It might not seem like much, but what does it tell us about God? The people of Nineveh get the point immediately, Right? I mean, they sit in ashes and wear sackcloth and, and starve themselves and pray. Why? So they get the point. They understand. Oh, this means we're evil. And God is going to get us for it. I mean, can you imagine a preacher today getting away with this? Like, like when Joe comes back? Okay, I got a message for you. Point one. You suck. Point two, God's going to get you for it. Let us pray. Like, that would not, like, how would that go? How would that go? And not very well. Okay, but, but think about it. What does, this, what does this message tell us? For, for the Ninevites, what they realize is, oh, God is righteous. God cares about justice and, 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 and purity and holiness, and we're not pure, we're not just, we're, we're, we're unjust, and we're violent. We're in, the, 
we're in the wrong in the sight of this right God. It's only eight words, but it tells the Ninevites something immediately important about God. He's righteous and holy, and He hates injustice and violence. But what else is there? Is there something else in there about God, maybe? What more could you get out of it? Think about 40 days. What does 40 days mean? What does it mean that He's giving us 40 days warning? This God is patient. This God is merciful. Notice how the king, the king has a fantastic interpretation of this sermon. This is the king's, the, the king does all the work when it comes to application. He says, verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent. Right? Like, like if we pray, and if we fast, and if, and if we turn from our injustice, and if we turn from our violence, if we, if we put that stuff in the rearview mirror and hit the gas, who knows? This God who has given us 40 days warning might turn and relent. In other words, if He's righteous and He's patient enough to give us 40 days, maybe He's merciful too. Why does God's Word change people? Because behind His Word is Himself. This God who is righteous and, and merciful. And the king sees this. The king hears this and he thinks to himself or must have thought something like this to himself. If he's going to give us 40 days warning and if he's this righteous, maybe he's merciful too. And if he's that righteous and he's that merciful, maybe he's worth changing for. Maybe he's worth hearing and obeying. That's why, God's, that's why revival comes through God's word. Ultimately, God's word is an expression of what he's like. And when you think about it, that way, when you think about God's Word as an expression of what He's like, it makes total sense that John, in the Gospel, would call Jesus the Word. Because that's what Jesus does. He reveals God. He is God in the flesh and is therefore the ultimate Word from God. If you see this with me, it's in John 1. We can survey it really quickly. In the Gospel of John, verse 1, we could just you know, kind of comb through here and see some of this. In the beginning, it says, verse 1, was the Word. And it's not immediately clear, you know, what John is talking about. We've got to let John tell us exactly what he means. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was both with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it, depending on your translation. So he talks about this Word. talks about this... God, who was in the beginning and made everything. And, and then he says in 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And jumping down to 16, and it's from His fullness that we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. <coughs> 
the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is why Jesus is called the Word. It's through Jesus that God has made Himself known. It's through Jesus that God has talked. If you, if you go to the book of Hebrews even, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read this for you really quickly. It's phrased very interestingly. Hebrews 1, it says, uh, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us, how? By His Son. Right? By His Son. So the way God speaks to creation is Jesus, the Word made flesh. And Jesus, as the Word of God, it connects powerfully with the message of Jonah 3. Because Jonah's word from God, right, it reveals a righteous God, does it not? Jonah's word from the Lord re reveals a righteous God. And then you've got Jesus, the perfect word from the Lord. And He reveals the righteousness of God as well, does He not? Only here's how He does it. Jesus reveals as the word of God he reveals the righteousness of God, but He does it as the victim of God's righteousness. He does it on that cross where He takes all the righteous judgment of God from my sins and your sins on Himself and casts them away. <clears throat> this is why Paul and calls the gospel itself the very wisdom and power of God. Because behind the words of the gospel is a God who must punish sin. He's righteous. He must punish sin. And yet, a God who is so humble and so loving, He takes that punishment on Himself in our place. This is how God brings about a change in people. This is where revival comes from. It comes from the faithful proclamation of that good news by His own forgiven people. Now, <clears throat> let me give you a couple takeaways, um, a couple applications to, to wind down this morning. <clears throat> um, I want to continue on this point of, really I want to apply this whole word part. Um, I jumped ahead in application when I was just talking about us and um, talking about pride and forgetfulness. And so now we're just going to apply for the rest of our week, you know, what we can take away from this idea that it's God's Word that changes people. Okay, so as a church, we want people to be saved, right? As, as churches, as Christians, we want other people to get what we get, to, to have the joy that we have, to have the freedom from sin that we have, to have this peace with God that we have. And what we, what we read here about Jonah and revival, it really guides us as churches because it really enforces a very important principle when it comes to our evangelism. And, and here's the principle. When it comes to evangelism, what we win people with is what we win people to. What we win people with is what we win people to. Win people with something other than God's Word, win people with something other than God's Gospel, and you will have won someone to something other than God's Gospel. It's that simple. So I started this morning by telling you about Marjo Gortman. And hallelujah, none of you have heard of him. Because um, the interesting surprise about Marjo Gortman, and, and this comes out in the documentary that was made about him, he was a complete fraud. 
as a child, he, he, he left the, the Christian faith and he went off and he lived a life of rebellion and addiction and immorality. And, and then when he shows up again in the preaching circuit with a testimony about how God rescued him from that, it was a complete fraud. The truth is, he ran out of money. And the only thing he knew how to do was preach. He said to himself, I've never been very good at anything else, but I know how to make money by preaching. So he made up this story about how he got converted back to Christianity. And he did this revival, he did these revival circuits and and made all his money back by these revivals. And and the documentary happened because he felt so bad after doing this for years and years and years. He made this documentary where the camera crews just followed him around at these revivals, and before the revivals, he would tell them, okay, here's how I'm going to manipulate the crowd. Here's how I'm going to make the crowd cry. Here's how I'm going to like try to get the, the crowd here to speak in tongues over here. Here's how I'm going to get this gal to, 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 to faint um, because she's so overwhelmed by, by all, all of the... You know, all, all of the things that are, that are going on. And, and in the documentary is a look behind how he just faked the whole thing. And so, like, the documentary becomes, like, his, his confession. It's an amazing, horrifying story. And, and, and here's why I bring it up. I don't bring it up to discourage you or make you worry about your preachers. I, I bring it up to point out the fact that it's not hard to draw a crowd. Anybody can draw a crowd. You don't have to be a Christian, to draw a crowd. You can do all kinds of things to get people in the doors. You can do all kinds of things to get people in the seats. It's not hard. Marjo proves that. But what will change people? What will actually grow God's kingdom? What will actually bring life and peace and joy where it is spread? That's the Word of God. That's the Gospel of God. That's the truth that Jesus has lived for us and died for us and risen from the dead so that this whole place could be made new and every tear wiped away and death and sadness be no more forever and ever because we'll be with God face to face forever. That's the message that changes people. That's the Word that changes people. You know, I've had... A little experience over the last 10 years or so, um, searching for pastoral positions. I've been in ministry about 10 years, and so I've gone through my share of, um, or a, you know, a moderate share of, of candidating to be pastor of, of various churches. And one of the things I've, I've found over and over again is that as churches, even as Christians, we slip into thinking that something other than the Word of God is what's going to grow the church. I've had churches tell me that we, you know, like, hey, we think you're, you, we think you're going to be a good pastor, and, and we think you've got all the qualities we're looking for, but we're just looking for somebody a little older. We just think that we, and on, on the pastoral team, we need somebody a little older. And that's, and that's, that's fine in a sense. But, but then I'll also see churches go the opposite way, where they say, you know, we really need young people in the church. And if we don't have a young pastor, we won't have young people coming to, coming to church. And both of, those, both of those churches and each of those decisions are doing the exact same thing. They're trusting the age of the pastor to grow the kingdom of God. And friends, brothers and sisters, that's faithless. That's faith in the pastor. That's faith in the age of the pastor. That's faith in some kind of transient circumstantial thing to win people to Christ and grow the church. It's the Word of God 
that grows the church. It's the Word of God that changes people. And if we trust something about our pastor, like if, like, like if you trust that your pastor's cooler than the other pastors in town, like, sorry, but you're not trusting the Word of God to grow the church. We don't trust the pastor. We don't trust the age of the pastor. We don't trust anything. We trust the Word of God because behind the Word of God stands God who opens people's hearts and opens people's eyes to the beauty of Himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ living and dying and rising for our sins and for our hope. We're not to trust in whatever we think will work. We're to trust in the Word of God to grow the church. Now, last application. Uh, last application from this reality that the Word of God changes us is, is just this. Preach it to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself the Word of God. I just want to read to you. Um, this is on the screen, but I don't know if I made it big enough. <clears throat> so, um, I just want to commend the advice of a great preacher of the past to you. This is from an um, old, long-gone preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's from his book, uh, Spiritual Depression, uh, Its Causes and Cures. And this is what he says, um, and just a bit of comment. Um, what he's commenting on here is um, Psalm 42. So if you want to understand even more about what he's getting at here, you could... Uh, read Psalm 42 this week. So Psalm 42 is the psalmist is really down on himself and he's, he's even talking to himself at one point saying, why are you cast down, O my soul? I mean, it's a, it's a dark psalm where he's really down on himself and it's only the last line or two that are, you know, are hopeful. But anyway, <clears throat> he's talking about Psalm 42 and how Psalm 42 tells us to talk to ourselves. And this is what he says. <clears throat> Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and so on and so forth. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? It's yourself that is talking to you. Now the man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. And he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been repressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? And what business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged Himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with the man of Psalm 42, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. What Lloyd-Jones is saying here is that our hearts are not yet free 
from the presence of sin. And because our hearts are not yet free from the old man, from the, from the presence of sin, our hearts still lie to us. They still talk to us and they still lie to us. And they tell us that God doesn't love us and that Christ's sufficient sacrifice on the cross is, is not good enough. And so what Lloyd-Jones points to here and, and what God has given us is this word, this new heart to believe this word and to trust His word so that when our hearts lie to us, we have a gospel to tell to our own hearts. To tell ourselves the good news that yes, we are great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. And this morning, as we share communion together, this is what we're proclaiming. This is what we're proclaiming as we share communion together, that Jesus is a great Savior. We have bread here, and we have a cup. And when we take this bread... And we put it in the cup, this broken bread, and put it in the cup. We are reminding ourselves and remembering the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us on the cross. And this connects to the idea of, of God giving us His Word because Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 that when we do this, when we take up these reminders of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, we are proclaiming. What's he say? For as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Okay, so, so if you come this morning and you share with this, or share in this with us, you're all kind of becoming preachers. You're all proclaiming the word of the Lord. The Lord's death. Now think about that for a minute. We are proclaiming a Lord's death. How have you seen in your life people use authority? Most of us have or have had jobs at some point. All of us have had parents, grandparents, caregivers. And even the best of them have never been perfect, right? Sometimes people use their authority to put you under their heel. Use their authority to make you feel bad and crush you. How does our Lord use His authority? Our Lord used His authority to die. Our Lord, He didn't use His authority to put us under His heel. He used His authority to serve and give his own life up for us. That's good news. And that's the good news that we proclaim when we share in these things. So if you're under the lordship of that Jesus this morning, then we want you to share these things with us. We want to pray for you if you'd like particular prayer requests uh, to be offered. It would be a good thing if under the Lordship of Jesus you came and shared this with us. Uh, if you're not under the Lordship of Jesus, if you're not believing in Jesus as your Lord, then it's a good thing to wait. Don't proclaim something that you know you don't believe. We can still pray for you up here. 
But if you are believing in that Lord who was broken and who poured out His blood for your sins, then we want you to come and proclaim it. Not just to your own heart, but to each other. One of the ways that I'm blessed by my time here is, is just to be able to see you guys, see each other share in this. You know, a lot of times, and this, it's fine, I'm not saying there's, there's a, the other churches do it wrong, but, you know, a lot of times you'll sit in communion and it's just, just you in the pew or just you in the chair and it's just you right there, right, just all by yourself. You're not looking left, you're not looking right, but the way we do it here, we get to watch each other do it, right? Okay, so you're preaching to each other as you share this together. And so we invite you to do that, to come and partake in this proclamation of Christ's body broken in our place and His blood for our forgiveness. Let's pray and then you can come when you're ready. Father God, we thank You for Jesus and we thank You that You have given Him to us sinners who do not deserve Him. We pray that You would just soften our hearts and open our eyes to His beauty and His grace and His glory and give us the hearts to turn from our sins and entrust ourselves to You to preach the gospel to ourselves when the world and the devil would condemn us and tell us that You do not love us and we are hopelessly lost that we would have this gospel in our hearts to proclaim to ourselves and to the world that You save. That You speak and seas are parted. That You speak and worlds are made. That You speak and hearts are changed. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You that His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead are not mere poetry, not a mere fantasy, not a fairy tale or a metaphor or a story but that they happened, and that because they happened, they cannot unhappen. Because they happened, we are yours. And our sins are forgiven. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. from the well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.